Thank you, Pastor. Well, it's a privilege for me to be here again. I'm so thankful to make it. We, we was, I was supposed to come in October last year, and the, your government went to very drastic steps to keep me <laughs> out of your state. I tried not to take that personally, but I'm just thankful that I can be here now. I'm thankful that the border stayed open. If we'd arrived, we arrived on Friday. If we'd arrived on Saturday, we'd be in quarantine now. So I'm thankful that for, to, for answered prayer that we that we got here, and I'm thankful my wife could come with me for the first time to Western Australia. Um, I kind of like having her around. Yeah, this is um, next month is our 40th wedding anniversary. So, yeah, and she's yes. I'm also uh, want to bring you greetings from the church in Canberra. Your brothers and sisters on the other side of the country and it's not as cold over there as your pastor tries to make out all right it is as cold but it we also it's hot in summer i want to tell you that i'm thankful for the beautiful worship that was in this house this morning and i'm thankful for the presence of god i feel here but it's not surprising because we are all part of the family of god we're all children of the same father we're brothers and sisters and when his children get together and worship him of course we're going to feel his presence aren't we he's always going to show up well this morning i want to read to you from the book of hebrews chapter 12 hebrews chapter 12 thank you also for allowing me to speak to the men brother grant uh, the men's leader let me speak to the men yesterday morning and put on a fantastic breakfast as well i was really blessed to be there hebrews chapter 12 oh and i before, i can't sorry i nearly forgot to thank you and sister kathy for your hospitality seriously they know how to spoil people honestly um they even buy like if you meant just mention what ice cream you like next you know it's there it's amazing hebrews chapter 12 beginning at verse 1 therefore we also Soon to be are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us or besets us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Heavenly Father, as we open your word this morning, I pray, O oh God, that you would speak to your church, Lord. Let me not get in the way, Lord, but let them hear what you would say to them today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's nice to see new faces, man. but it's equally as nice to see old faces, you know. I was working, working, I think it was 2016 last time I was here, five years ago. And any time you come back five years later and see people still faithfully serving God, it's a, it's a, it's a great thing. And it's a great thing to see new people joining the family as well. Anyway, this scripture here in Hebrews, the scripture often uses sporting analogies to help us understand things of God. And Paul often did in, in his scripture. And in, in this particular script, well, sorry, it might not be the Apostle Paul who wrote this. Just before I get into trouble from a, from a Bible scholar, it we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. That's why it's not grouped with the Pauline epistles. 
with the general epistles. But whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, under the inspiration of God, (laughs) have I covered everything now? (sighs) Even at minister's retreat, like, I can't help digging myself into holes. It's just what I do, all right? So I try and look at my wife and she tells me, stop digging. Anyway, in this scripture, whoever wrote it, inspired by God, they compared our Christian walk to a race. To a race. Not a sprint, though. Not a sprint. It's not who gets there first, who matures the quickest, who, you know, is the first into the baptistry. There's no, you know, you can, you can read the scripture where Jesus talked about the workers in the, in the, in the, in the field, you know, and the, how they hired some early in the morning and paid them the same as the person who was hired in the last hour of the day. There's no reward for being first in the kingdom of God, as it were. It's not a race that way, but it's a marathon. It's a marathon. We're supposed to run with endurance the race that's set before us, or patience this, the race. And it says here in the scripture that to be successful in running this race, in, in this Christian walk that we have, that we've started on, we have to lay aside two things. Firstly, the sin, which so easily ensnares us or besets us. And secondly, we have to weigh aside every weight that will slow us down, that will hinder us in this walk, in, in reaching the end. Because these are not the same things. We know that sin is a weight. It will definitely slow you down, no doubt about that. But there's also other weights that are not sin that can have an effect on your Christian walk as well. And this, this concept of a marathon, of endurance, of being a, and a race of endurance, was backed up by Jesus, of course. He, he recorded a couple of times of saying the same things. And I've got here Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, where he, he said this more than once. He said, He who endures to the end shall be saved. And of course, in, a, in our Christian language, in, we like to use the word saved. Some people don't understand what that means. What it means basically, who's going to make it to the end? Who's going who's to make it, to, it into the presence of God, you know? That's what it means. And I remember when I, first, when I first came to church, one of the brothers told me this. He said, someone asked him, who's going to be saved? Who's going to make it? And, you know, you can give all these answers. You can say, oh, he's got to be b- baptized, you know. You've got to be repent of your sins. You've got to be born again. Because that's what Jesus told Nicodemus, didn't he? He said, if you're not born again of the water and the spirit, you can't even see the kingdom of God, never mind the, the enter the kingdom of God. And this brother said, no. The scripture says, he that endures to the end, he's going to make it. And it's true that unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Because Jesus said so. That makes it true. But it's a, it's a new birth. It's a new birth. That means it's just the beginning. It's just the start of this race. A new life starting, if you like. Being born again, a new life from that moment on. And oh, I love babies, you know. The pastor and I were talking about how much babies are great and what a pity it is they have to grow up. (laughs) Best thing about being a grandparent is 
babies that you don't have to like have all the time you can just enjoy them as babies you know we buy Nutella in bulk they come to our place they get nanny gives them whatever they want pretty much and then we load them up with sugar and then we send them home and we try not to think of it as revenge for on our children you know someone told me that um, and I agree that um, grandchildren are God's reward for not killing your children Brother Cholovsky, remember Brother Cholovsky? He's a wise man. He told me if he'd known grandkids were so good, he'd skip the kids. <laughs> go straight to the kids. I've gone off on a tangent, haven't I? <laughs> and the new birth is a new life. It's a new beginning. When we are born again, we still need to grow. We still need to mature. We don't want to... The scripture talks about those who, you know, they, they have the milk when you're a baby and meat for those that are, that are more mature, you know. And that's what our task is. This is the race that we're enduring in is actually our maturation and growing in the Lord. I keep looking at him to make sure he doesn't... Just making sure you don't, like, disagree. We are new creations. When we're baptized in Jesus' name, all our sins are remitted, paid for in full, and we're clean. We're born again, and then we're filled with the Spirit. That's the new newness of life, a walking in newness of life. And we're just like a little child. We're clean and new and precious. And as we grow, we are transformed, the Scripture says, by the renewing of our minds. And we are changed into the likeness of Jesus. We're changed into his image. So I guess if you ask me, who's going to make it? Who's going to be saved? If you want to use that Christian ease, is the person that's born again then endures to the end. Born again then endures to the end. And the scripture we just read in Hebrews reminds us that to make it to the end, to endure to the end, we have to put off the heavy things we carry. Because... We don't just want to start the race, we want to finish the race. The scripture in Hebrews tells us to lay aside, lay aside your sin, lay aside your sin. That means it's something that we have to do. I told the men yesterday that um, sometimes people um, are, wait for God, well, are waiting for God to do things that you can do. I told them a story about a lady who'd ring up asking for prayer for a job and then wouldn't get one because she didn't go and look for one. And she'd say, oh, you know, prayer doesn't work. But we know if she went out and looked, she would have found a job. If she'd prayed first and then went out, prayer is important. I told them that God's not willing that any should perish, but, but that all should come to repentance. And sometimes we wish God would make people repent, don't we? Let's, let's just be honest here. There's some people that we would say, go right ahead, God. But he, that, you have to choose. You have to choose to repent. You have to choose to be baptised, you know. It'd be good if you're walking past the Swan River and God just goes, and you're baptised. But that's not how it is. He will not do what we are called to do. And we are called to make the decision to repent and we're called to make the decision to be baptised. And then uh, there's a promise with that, of course, being filled with the Spirit of God.
But in this scripture, we're told to lay off the sin. That tells me that it's no good waiting for God to take it away from us. We have to lay it off. We're commanded to do it. And if you're commanded to do something in the scripture, you have the power to do that. It's within your ability to choose to obey. And in the scripture says, lay off the sin. Put it away from you. And sin, sin I'm not gonna, I don't want to harp on sin this morning. But sin's an easy problem to deal with. It's easy. Like as a pastor, it's probably the least of your problems. Because when you, when, you, when you do the wrong thing, all you have to do is confess, repent, and obey. Fixed. They're not running away from my preaching, are they? Confess, repent, obey. Because when you confess your sin, that doesn't mean you have to confess it to any person in particular. It means you need to confess it to God. And quite often, I think you need to confess it to yourself. And to me, confession is, instead of talking like we talk, we start talking like God talks. So instead of us saying, oh, everybody's doing it, or it doesn't matter, it's okay, we start talking like God talks. It's not right. It's wrong. It's not for you. There's better for you. That's what a confession is. And confession is an important step because it's us admitting to ourselves about what's happening. And repentance, that's Christian word, means turn from doing wrong to turn what's right. It's not just deciding not to do the wrong thing anymore. That's not repentance. Repentance is instead of doing what I want to do, I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to turn from that to this. That's a different choice. It's a different way of living. But when we're doing that, then we're starting to think like God thinks. So instead of using our own knowledge, our own understanding, our own background, we're starting to think like God thinks and living the way that he tells us to do it. And of course, as I said, obedience, when we obey, then we're beginning to act like God acts. We're actually doing the things he wants us to do instead of doing what we want. But as I said, the first step in that is confession, and that's an important step. And the reason for that is there's no responsibility where you have no authority. There's no responsibility where you have no authority. What do I mean by that? So, for example, let's say you work for someone, you're employed by a shop, and that means as an employer, you're not responsible for the practices and policies of that shop, of that workplace. You're just an employee. You're not the owner. You're not the manager, perhaps. You You don't decide on what they do. You don't decide on what they sell. You don't decide on the payment methods they take. So... Because you don't have control over that. And because you don't have control over that, you're not responsible for it. So, for example, if you're an employee, I know some places at home won't take debit and credit cards. They'll only take cash. Any places here like that? Hardly any, is there? But there's some, and we know why they want to take cash, don't we? Let's face it. It's because they don't want to pay the fee. But if you're an employee at that shop that only takes cash, you're not responsible for that. It's not your decision. 
You have no authority there, so therefore you're not responsible. There's no, there's no authority, there's no responsibility. However, if the boss says, you can decide whatever payment you, you accept and you choose to only accept cash, not credit card, now it's different, now you're responsible. It's the same thing at law. If you're driving a car and you're exceeding the speed limit, you're responsible because you're in control of the car. And the, um, the cr speeding is what they call a, an absolute offence. Um, you don't have to have a guilty mind, you know. You don't have to have meant to have do it like you do. Like you've got to, if you steal something, you've got to meant to have do it. You've got to have a guilty mind. Speeding, no, you either went over the speed limit or you didn't. And if you're over, you're guilty of an offence because you're under, you're in control of the car. However, if the car does something that you can't control, let's say it has a mechanical failure that you can't stop it exceeding the speed limit, now you're not responsible. Unless you didn't maintain your vehicle, but that's another story. But you understand what I'm saying? If you can't stop, let's say your brakes fail and you're going down a, a mountain and you can't slow down, you can't, like, you're not, you can't be charged with speeding. Well, you can, but you wouldn't be convicted because you're not responsible because you had no control. Am I getting there? There's no responsibility if you have no authority. The reverse is true. You don't have any authority where you don't take responsibility. If you don't take responsibility for something, you have no authority in that area. Romans chapter 6, verse 14 says this. This is the New Living Translation. Sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Thank the Lord for that. We have been set free from the power of sin. It no longer has dominion over us. We rather, we now have dominion or control or authority over what we do. That's the benefit of being born again. Those chains are broken, you know, the chains that bond us to a certain lifestyle, they're broken and now we can have authority or control over what we choose to do. So, if we never take responsibility for our own actions and attitudes, that means we can never have control over ourselves. And the first step to taking responsibility for your own actions and attitudes is to confess it to God and yourself. That's why the prodigal son had to come to himself. You know the story of the prodigal son? He went off and wasted all his father's inheritance on prodigal living and he ended up in a pig sty, wanted to eat the pig food. And the scripture says he came to himself and said, "If my, in my father's house they have enough, bread and enough to spare. I, I've got to go back to my father's house and say, I'll be your servant. He came to himself. He realized the situation he was, he was in. He understood that it was his fault that he was where he was. It was because of his choices he was in that position. He had control authority over what he did therefore he's responsible for it interestingly we know that he went he went back to the father and said 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. And the father said, bring the best robe. Put the ring on his feet. Put the sandals on his feet. Let's have a party because my son was lost and now is found. That's how it is. When you're a child of God, you know you're a child of God. A child can't be a servant. Sometimes, like, if you've got a family business and you've got children working there, they look the same as everybody else. They, the scripture even tells you that. A child under a guardian looks the same, but he's not the same. If your other employees don't measure up, they no longer work, become your employees. You find someone else. If your children mess up, they're still your children. There's a whole different relationship between a child and a parent than there is than a servant and the parent and yes we're servants of God but we're his children that's a whole different relationship children are not children based upon their actions like sometimes we wish they would be like sometimes we wish we could can we trade this one in for another one but no they'll always be our child the prodigal son will always be the father's child no matter what he did and what he had to come to himself and come back, he couldn't live under the house, but he had to come back. But he'll always be the father's child. If you go to an AA meeting, the first thing you have to do is admit you're an alcoholic. Because if you want something out of your life, you have to bring it in the open and let it go. You've got to bring it into the light and release it. When you keep it, hidden inside, it's there and staying there. Let's, I said I didn't want to talk about sin. Let's, let's finish, that's enough about it. So let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the every weight. The every weight. The every weight. What things like anything that hinders our spiritual life, not sin, but circumstances or attitudes or weaknesses or character flaws or culture, anything that makes it harder to live as we should. I um, yeah, I might tell the story. My um, my wife and I, I I I met this lady on the 11th of January 1980, and um, we got married about 18 months later. And then we um, we did our normal thing. We had a couple of children, and we bought a house. And um, at that time, um, we had a government treasurer who said we needed to have a recession the older ones who remember that do you remember that yeah the recession we had to have and um we were paying a mortgage at the time and our mortgage interest rate what are your mortgage rates now three percent three point yeah. we went to eighteen and a half percent eighteen and a half percent it killed us, I tell you. And it put us under a lot of pressure, I have to say. And um, also at the time, I was a policeman. And it, it, was a, it was a good job. It's a respected job, mostly. Mostly, it is. It's a good job. But with the pressure of the mortgage and the pressure at work, we started having marital problems, as many people do when under those similar circumstances. And in fact, um, we separated. Do you mind if I tell them? 
It was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. And Debbie went to Queensland with our children, ostensibly for a break, but I knew she wasn't coming back. And then I came to myself and I said, being married is more important than a house or a job. Our relationship is worth far more than either of those things. It was a turning point in my life. There's nothing wrong with my job. The job was good. It was a respected job. There was nothing wrong with buying a house. Buying a house is a good thing. But there was something more important that they were hindering, that they were causing damage to. So I left, I resigned from the police force and we sold our house and here we are, 40 years. And it's the same when you're walking with God. Some things, and there's nothing wrong with them, but if they're hindering your relationship with our Father, there's something now that's much more important than anything like that. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46 and verse 47, it talks about Jesus. He said, They came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. That's, as, a, as a Bible scholar, you say, Why does it say son of Timaeus when it already says his name was Bartimaeus? Bartimaeus means son of Timaeus. Sent by the road, begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know the story of blind Bartimaeus? And they told him, stop crying out, stop crying out. And he cried out the more. He cried out louder. And verse 51 it says, And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. And I thought, that's a strange thing, isn't it? Here's this blind guy begging by the roadside in his beggar's rags and he hears Jesus coming past and he cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and, and called him and he threw off his beggar's robe and he went up to him and Jesus said, what do you want? Hello? I'm blind. Isn't it obvious what Bartimaeus wanted? Debbie started coming to church a long time before I did. I'm picking on you a lot today, aren't I, darling? She, came, she started coming to church nine years before me. Nine years. And um, she later told me that when she was in church and I wasn't, I was a great excuse. It's true, she said. Not only did people sympathise with her because her husband was not saved and had sympathy on her, she had a ready-made excuse. She didn't want to do something. She didn't even have to lie. She didn't say, oh, my husband won't let me. She'll say something, oh, I just don't want to, you know, my husband might not like it. So I don't come to that particular thing. I was her excuse. And she was praying for me to start coming to church 
but did she really want me to? Because if I was started coming to church, her excuse for not doing things was gone. And if I was coming to church too, what would that mean for her? What would people expect of her now? And more than that, what would God now expect of, me, of her when her husband's in church with you? Now they're no longer able to come and go as I please. Now there's a greater expectation on me. And so I think that's why well, Bartimaeus is the same thing. Bartimaeus was blind. If he suddenly could see, now he, how's he going to live? His blindness, if you like, was, was his job. He had probably, I'm only guessing, but I think it's a fair assumption, that as a blind man at that time, he had no trade or, or background in employment. or uh, he, he was blind. That was it. His blindness was his... We even call him blind Bartimaeus. And you take away the blind, his identity is gone. And I've seen people that their... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Affliction is their identity. Take it away and they don't know who they are. Blind Bartimaeus, you take away his blindness, his whole life's changed. People are not going to just give him money anymore. He would have to work. Maybe he had no idea what he would do. No wonder Jesus asked him what he wanted. What do you want? And Bartimaeus identified the thing that was holding him down. He could have asked for something else and stayed blind and just stayed in the same place for the rest of his life. But he realized that without his blindness, he could never progress. I'm oh, sorry, without his blindness being healed. His future without his blindness might have been unknown or even frightening. or It must have been a frightening thing for him to consider. But he knew he was stuck where he was until he brought it out, until he confessed it. And that's what he did. He said that I might see. His healing opened the door for so much more than he had up till then. He could have been safe, safe how he was, or he could have taken that bold and step that requires a lot of courage to see where God would take him. And we can be struck by the same fear. We can, be, we can say we want to change, we want to change, we want to throw off the, the weight that's, that's stopping me moving forward, but what happens if it's gone? What would God expect of me? With the way things are, at least I know who I am. At least I know where I am. I know how to act. I know what's expected of me. Now, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is once again in LT, it says, Even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness 
so that the power of Christ can work through me. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He didn't have a thorn in the spirit. You read the scripture and there's no place where, thought, where Paul said he was unable to do something because of this thorn. It didn't affect his spiritual life. All it did was remind him of his own weakness and reliance on God. It didn't, it didn't hold him back in any way. In fact, his thorn caused him to rely on Jesus and not on his own strength. And so his problem wasn't an excuse It can, it's harsh, but we can say that afflictions are reasons, not excuses. Paul never used his problem as, a, as an excuse. In fact, he said once that it never prevented him from doing anything. And then there was the man with the withered hand in Mark chapter 3. Jesus entered the synagogue again and a man was there who had a withered hand. And all the, all, it says the Pharisees wanted to... you know looking at him to see if he's going to break the Sabbath by healing the man on the Sabbath, you know, because that was against the law. Anyway, in verse 5 of Mark chapter 3, it says, When Jesus had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And as he stretched it out, his hand was restored as whole as the other. When Jesus said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So here's a guy who's got a withered hand. Doesn't, I don't think it says what hand it was, does it? I don't think so. So let's say it's this hand. His hand's withered. And Jesus came to him and said, stretch out your hand. If it was you, what hand would you stretch out? The good one. This man had to decide which hand he was going to hold out to Jesus. Maybe he thought to himself, this is who I am. This affliction is my excuse. I'm used to how I am with this. If I don't have this affliction, what's it going to mean for me? Maybe he decided, I don't want to go out the front of everybody and hold out my withered hand for them to all look at. And that's a real fear. I don't want to draw attention to my flaws. I don't want to expose my weakness to everybody. So Jesus gave him a choice about which hand he would offer. And he had to choose, do I want to change? Do I want to change? He needed to confess to God and to himself that his hand was withered. Jesus said, hold out your hand. He could have held out his good hand. But he needed to say, I have a withered hand that needs healing. This is hindering me. This is stopping me being what I can be. And if we are willing to expose our flaws to God, we don't need to fear what will happen. We don't need to fear who we will be or what will become of us. Because God is for us. If you have a child, you'll do anything you can to protect that child. You will do all you can to let that child grow 
and mature into a fine young man or woman. We are children of God. He's not going to let you die as a baby. The future is so wide for us if we can just put aside the weights that are hindering us, get over the fear and take the step of courage and faith to let God heal us. In Romans 8.31 it says this, What shall we say to these things? What things? Everything. What shall we say to anything? If God is for us, who can be against us? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19, it says, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, by Silvanus, by Simon, by Kathy, by Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. In him was all the promises of God are yes, and in him, amen, which means let it be, even so, let it be. And in him amen to the glory of God through us with God we don't have to be anyone or anything except ourselves he's made us as we are we're all different parts of the one body but we don't expect clones we don't have to fear rejection because he loves us and accepts us just as we are with all our faults and our flaws and our weaknesses and our, our quirks. But as we walk with him, as we run with endurance, the race set before us, we will learn to trust him more and more. And as we run this race, he will change us and mould us and we'll become more and more and more and more and more like him. The weights will drop away as we bring them out, as we expose them to the light, as we ask for healing for them, as we lay them aside because we choose to do so. We can't take them off us. We can't remove these things. We can hold them out to him and ask him to take them away. And then we can with it, have the will to walk and obey as he's called us to do. We have the choice to, to confess, repent and obey. If we try trying to do the right thing, he's going to strengthen us and help us. But we need to choose to allow him to work in us. We don't want to not keep in these things because we're never going to lose them if we keep them. You need to let them go. And we need to choose to lay aside those weights, to expose them to him as we offer them for healing and allow him to make us whole. Make us whole. We're not going to stagger across the line. We're going to be whole and complete in him. Let's stand this morning, shall we? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we are your children, that you love us, oh God. Lord, and as we face, Lord, our fears and bring them before you, we ask in Jesus' name that you would let your peace that passes understanding come into our hearts, oh God. Help us to have faith and boldness and confidence in you because you deserve our confidence. You are a Heavenly Father.
You care for us, oh God, and you have a, 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 an expected end for us. You have a plan and a purpose and a future. And we place ourselves into your hands and your care, Lord, and we pray. I pray in Jesus' name that each one of us, Lord, as we bring our flaws and our faults and our weaknesses before us, oh God, that you would remove them from us. Help us, oh God, to lay off these weights. Help us, Lord God, to confess any sin, Lord God, to identify it and remove it. ask you to remove it from us, oh God. We place ourselves in your hands and your care because you love us and we love you. We're so blessed to know you, oh God. We thank you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, brothers. Amen.